Well, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. As you recall, we are in this section of Luke's Gospel where we have been and are encountering a number of Jesus' miracles. We have recently witnessed Jesus' rebuking of the winds and the waves as he calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Last week we witnessed Jesus' healing of this demoniac in this Gentile region of the Gerasenes. In this text before us, we are, are going to witness... Jesus' healing of a woman who's had a discharge of blood for 12 years, as well as a young girl who's been raised from the dead. And then in chapter 9, we're going to witness Jesus' miraculous turning of, of bread, or turning of, of stones into bread as he feeds the 5,000. And within this, this section, we've encountered both belief and unbelief. Doubt and trust among the crowds, among the disciples who have witnessed these these miracles. And this is leading us to a climactic moment in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 9, verse 20, where we will see Peter, the Apostle Peter, confessing that this Jesus is the Anointed One, the Messiah of God. So Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56, I'd ask you to pay careful attention, for this is the word of our Lord. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. And Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. And he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, 
arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this evening. Well, faith is a word that we use often. We use this word in our colloquial speech. We oftentimes speak of having faith in a sports team, faith in the stock market, faith in a certain organization. We may speak of a lack of faith in a certain politician or a political party. However, this word faith is used even more so in our religious communities, in our churches. We oftentimes speak of someone growing in his or her faith. Or we may ask an individual to pray for our faith. This is a term that we use often. But what does it mean? What is faith? Well, like any word that is generally known within a community and used often within that community, its meaning can become assumed and people become less and less cognizant of what that term actually means. We've all probably had that instance where we are speaking and someone stops us, maybe a child stops us and asks us what a word that we have recently used means. And what seemed obvious moments ago now doesn't seem quite so obvious as we're stumbling through a definition. I think a similar thing could happen with this, this term faith. We use it a lot, but what does it actually mean? And so this evening, I'd like to bring to the table this question, what is faith? What is true faith? And without being exhaustive, this text, this narrative before us, provides a very good start to understanding what some of the, the characteristics are of true faith. And so I'd like us to walk through this narrative this evening through the lens of this question of what is true faith? What is true faith? Faith. Well, as you recall, a couple passages ago, we witnessed Jesus and his disciples get into this fishing boat and they crossed the Sea of Galilee. And this sea was known to be able to churn up a storm in a moment's notice, and, and that's what happened. And Jesus, showing his authority and power over the, the forces of nature, rebuked the winds and the waves. And they were able to safely and calmly reach the other side. And it's on the other side, this, this region of the Gerasenes, that Jesus healed this demoniac in this Gentile region. And now we see that Jesus and his disciples got back into that boat and crossed back over the Sea of Galilee and now are again on the western side of the sea. And that's the setting of our narrative here uh, for us this evening. And so Jesus is, is outside the boat. He's on dry land. He's almost immediately, uh, he immediately encounters this man named Jairus. And Luke tells us that Jairus was a, a ruler of the local synagogue, an elder. And as an elder or ruler of the local synagogue, he would have had the responsibility of organizing the synagogue services. 
He would have been a man of, of considerably high social standing, a good reputation within his community. And in a very vulnerable uh, moment of, of emotion, this man, Jairus, comes before Jesus, throws himself upon the ground, and implores Jesus to come to his home and heal his sick daughter who is on death's doorstep. You'll notice that Luke includes this detail by saying that this daughter is Jairus' only daughter. I believe he does this to increase the emotion and pathos of this passage. If you recall in Luke chapter 7, uh, we encounter Jesus raising the only son of a widow. Luke also includes this detail about this daughter's age, that this is a 12-year-old girl. Now, in the ancient world, it was quite common and ordinary for girls at around the age of 12 to begin getting married, transitioning out of their father's household, entering into their husband's household, and becoming a wife and a mother. And so in some sense, this girl is on death's doorstep as she is entering the very prime of her life. Again, I think Luke is warning us to feel something of what this father would have felt. Your only daughter who's entering the prime of her life and she's about to die. Well, as Jairus is is on, on the floor before Uh, Jesus imploring him to come to his house, we see that this scene is chaotic. On a couple of occasions, Luke tells us that the crowd is pressing in upon Jesus. We all probably hate situations like this. Crowds where we're shoulder to shoulder with people, we're, we're getting bumped, we can hardly think, we can hardly see. It's loud. It's chaos. In fact, in verse 42, this, this, this term that Luke uses for the crowd pressing in upon Jesus is the same word that Luke has recently used in the parable of the sower to refer to how the thorns press in upon the seed of God's word, seeking to choke it out. So it's in that sense we see these crowds like thorns choking out Jesus and his disciples. Well, then we come across this, this, this next woman, woman. Uh, this woman who Luke tells us has had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and she has tried out every doctor in the community, has spent all of her savings, all of her living trying to, to be healed to no avail. And this woman has has heard that Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, this Jewish teacher from the obscure small village who's been casting out unclean spirits and demons, this Jesus who's raised someone from the dead, who's cleansed lepers, she starts to think, maybe this Jesus can help with my affliction, with my illness. Notice the repetition of the word 12. It was a 12-year-old daughter, and now almost immediately Jesus encounters a woman who's had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Again, Luke is wanting us to feel the emotion 
of what this woman was going through. This woman has been suffering for the same length of time that this young girl has been alive. This woman is able to, to persevere through this crowd, this crowd who, like thorns, was trying to press in upon Jesus. And she was just able to get close enough so that she could reach out and touch the very fringe of his garment. And notice that Jesus, after, almost immediately after this woman touches the, the fringe of Jesus' garment, Jesus asks, Who touched me? Can you imagine Peter's perplexity at this question? Master, what are you talking about? There's a crowd pressing in upon you. There's no doubt been dozens of people bumping into you. What do you mean who touched you? I'm sure there's been dozens of people touching you. And then Jesus responds by saying, no, someone touched me. I perceive power. Power has gone out from me. Now, in verses 44 through 47, Luke repeats this verb to touch four times. Now, this, for us as as people who generally read a passage maybe once, we may miss this detail, but we have to remember, in its original setting, in the first century, uh, a letter like Luke or a gospel like Luke would have been read publicly. People would not have encountered it through reading it privately. They would have heard it. It was an oral culture. Very few people had their own personal copies of books. It was very laborious to copy and produce books. And so people would have heard this uh, spoken to them orally. And so if you think about hearing something, you really pick up on the repetition of words, don't you? And so the original setting, the original hearers of this gospel, they would have noticed Luke is wanting to emphasize the fact that this woman has touched Jesus. Four times. Four times we see this word repeated. Well, that begs the question, well, why the emphasis on this woman touching Jesus? Well, this woman, no doubt, would have been poor. She likely would have been a social outcast. This woman would have had very low uh, social standing, reputation within the community. And this woman, especially in light of Judaism and the Mosaic Law, would have been in a perpetual state of ritual uncleanness and impurity. Now that's important to remember. This woman likely would have lived in isolation because of this, because if if this woman encounters, comes into contact with another human being, she defiles that person, and that person now has to go through uh, steps of purification to be restored back into the community. And so, if this woman reaches out and touches Jesus, what does that mean? Ordinarily, that means that Jesus is defiled according to the ritual laws of Israel. Now, in the Old Testament, when that which is unclean meets that which is clean, who wins? That which is unclean always defiles that which is clean. Someone comes into contact with a dead corpse, Someone has sexual intercourse, a menstruating woman, all these things that would make you ritually unclean. If you come into contact with that, that which is clean is defiled every single time. 
But here, for the first time ever, we see that which is clean triumphing over that which is unclean. The cleansing power of Jesus eradicates the very source of this woman's ritual impurity. It's quite amazing. First time ever, that which is clean beats, overcomes that which is unclean. This woman had touched, touched Jesus. And when all, everyone else, had, everyone had denied touching Jesus, we see that this woman, at the, almost at the very last instance, admits that she was the one. That she was the one who touched Jesus and she was immediately healed. She only confesses this really at that point when she, she knew that Jesus knew it was her. It likely was a test. Jesus, Jesus knew all along who it was, but this was a test. No doubt this would have been very difficult for her. I'm sure there was glares upon her. Who is this, this woman, defiled woman, touching this Jewish teacher? I'm sure it was very difficult for her to do that, to confess. In the midst of this crowd that she has touched Jesus. If you look with me at verse 48, verse 48, Jesus says to this woman, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This is a great capstone to this first part of, of this narrative before us. As I believe it summarizes some of the key aspects of this woman's faith that we see exemplified in this passage. As I mentioned, I wanted to walk through uh, this first part of, of this passage through that lens of the question of what is faith? I should say that we're only going to consider the first half of this passage. Next week we'll conclude uh, this narrative. But I'd like to point your attention to three aspects, three characteristics of faith that we see found in this woman in this narrative. So again, notice that Jesus says, daughter, your faith. He emphasizes the woman's faith. And so here we see the necessity of faith. As I previously mentioned, this woman likely didn't have extraordinary faith. I'm sure she was somewhat trembling, timid, and, and fearful to confess in front of that crowd that she was the one who touched Jesus. The point that Luke is wanting us to see in this narrative is not that this woman is some uh, saint who has extraordinary faith, but rather Luke's point, Jesus' point, is to emphasize the fact that she has faith. Not that she has enough faith, but that she has faith. Now you can think of faith existing on a spectrum. You have weak faith on one hand, and you have strong faith on the other hand. And the life of sanctification is really a, a life of growing in your faith. What makes faith saving, what makes faith justifying, what grants us access to the benefits of Christ? For this woman, it was the, the cleansing power of Christ, but we have to recognize that this miracle is, is, is pointing to the spiritual benefits that we have in Christ. So what grants us access to these benefits of Christ is not where we're, we're at on the spectrum, but that we're on the spectrum. It's not about where we're, where we're at on the spectrum, but that we're on the spectrum. 
In Luke 17, Jesus is going to say that faith as small as a mustard seed is still saving faith. Faith as small as a mustard seed. A mustard seed was the, the smallest known seed in that time period. What Jesus is saying is even if your faith is on the farthest end of the spectrum, the weakest faith that you've ever seen, if it's on the spectrum, it's still saving, justifying faith. So faith, faith is what grants us access to these, these benefits of Christ. But why is faith so important? What is it about faith that grants us this, this access, these benefits? Well, faith functions as an instrument to attach us, attach us to Christ. Again, it would have been laughable to this woman. If, if someone would have came up to this woman and said, wow, Good, good job for healing yourself. You know, you probably did about 40, 50% of the work, and you know, Jesus did his part. But wow, good job. She would have laughed at you. She knew it wasn't her, her, her to take credit for. This is completely a work of Christ. And so when Jesus says, daughter, your faith has made you well, he's not somehow saying that, that this woman has done her part, and then Jesus, like the anchor runner, has, did, has done his part. No, Jesus has done it all, and this woman would have told you the same. She's tried every human resource, every doctor in her area, and no one could heal her. This was a work of Christ. Well, just as her hand, right? Her hand was the, the channel through which the power and the cleansing of Christ came her way. So, too, you can think of faith as the empty hand, the empty hand that receives all the benefits of Christ. Christ as our justification, Christ as our sanctification, Christ as our glorification, our resurrection. All our faith is that empty hand that receives Christ. It's Christ who is our salvation. So we see the importance of faith. Not that faith itself saves us or that it's the, the one good work that we need to stand before a holy God, but rather faith is the hand that receives Christ. And Christ is our hope our comfort in life and in death. So we see the necessity of faith. But notice in the same clause, we see Jesus saying, daughter, your faith. He's not just pointing to generic faith by someone out there, but this woman's faith that she possesses, that she professes. So here we see the, the need for a personal faith. And by personal faith, I don't mean that we somehow have to say a certain prayer in order to be saved. What I mean is that we need to believe personally that Christ is for us. That is to say, he's for you and he's for me. This woman no doubt would have heard of the reputation of Christ. His many miracles that he had been performing across the countryside, his power and his authority that he had been exercising. But this woman didn't just believe about Christ. This woman didn't just believe that, that Jesus could theoretically save someone with a disease like hers. No, she believed that Jesus could help her with her affliction and her suffering. Now, Heidelberg Catechism is one of our statements of faith that we believe as a Reformed Church. We, we think it, it faithfully summarizes the truth of the Word of God. It's it says in question answer 21, it asks, what is true faith? 
And it captures the heart of the Reformation's understanding of faith and really Scripture's understanding of faith. It says that true faith is not only a sure knowledge that I hold for truth, all that God has promised to us in his word, but it's also a hearty trust, which the Holy Spirit works in us by the gospel. Now listen to this, that not only to others, but to me also, the forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation are freely given of God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. That clause, which is easy to bypass, but is so important that not only to others, but to me also. There's a lot that could be said about Christ. Indeed, there's been a lot written and said about Christ, even within our own tradition, about what Christ has accomplished for his people. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter knowing a lot of things about Christ. What matters is that you believe that Christ accomplished those things for you. That Christ isn't just a savior for someone out there, but he is a savior for you. So imagine for a moment those times in our life when we're struggling with a particular sin. We may feel the weight and the guilt of a a sin that's been plaguing us. Do you believe in those moments that Christ, when he walked this earth, he was motivated to triumph and overcome that particular sin so that he could provide you personally with a righteousness that is needed to stand before a holy God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that when Christ was agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was hanging on a Roman crucifix and experiencing not only the physical pain that would, that would come by being nailed to a cross, but moreover the bearing the weight of God's eternal wrath against sin in his soul? Do you believe that he did that? He went all the way to the cross so that your sins, your particular sins, which you had not even committed yet, would be washed away, that the wrath of God would be abated from you? Do you believe that for you? Do you believe that Christ rose from the dead so that your resurrection unto immortality would be guaranteed? That whatever affliction, suffering, pain you endure in this life, you will, be, you will rise to life immortal? Do you believe that what motivated Christ, the perplexity of his disciples to leave this earth and ascend to the right hand of the Father, was to reserve for you a place in the new creation? Do you believe that? Again, do you, is it, Christ didn't just die and live for people out there. He did it for you personally, with your own particular sins and weaknesses and disposition. Therefore, we're called to a personal faith, a faith that embraces Christ for ourselves. Daughter, your faith, your faith has made you well. Lastly, I'd like to briefly consider the benefit of faith or the benefits of faith. You'll see that Jesus begins this clause by saying, daughter, daughter. And here we see Jesus again referring to the spiritual family of God. We've witnessed him do this a few passages ago when his mother and brothers were trying to get through the crowd to reach Jesus. And he says, my mother, my brother are those who hear the word of God and do it. If you remember the crowd hearing this, again, would have been quite perplexing. Jesus, who likely was around 30 years of age, give or take. And this woman 
most likely was older than Jesus. And Jesus referring to this older woman as, as daughter, it would have been a, a bit strange if you were a member of the crowd. But just think for a few moments how comforting this would have been for this woman. This woman who, we know that she lived in social isolation. She was living in perpetual ritual impurity. So people didn't want to associate with her. There's a good chance that she would have been estranged from her natural family. A good chance that she really hadn't belonged anywhere. Felt any sort of acceptance in the last 12 years. And how Jesus, this this man with a reputation, with authority, is saying that you have, that she has a belonging, that she's a member of an everlasting community, a community that even transcends one's natural family as it will translate into the new creation, that she's a daughter of God the Father, and that Christ himself is her elder brother. Can you imagine how comforting that would be? You'll see that Jesus concludes this verse by saying, go in peace, go in peace. And this word peace has two main meanings. It can have a subjective meaning as well as an objective meaning. So subjectively, it can refer to our emotion of peace, but objectively, it refers to a state of relations. We speak of a country being at peace, right, with another country. I believe Luke here is referring to the latter reference, objective peace. This woman, this woman is at peace with God. Now, the whole point of the ritual system, the whole point of being impure, unclean, was to remind the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament that they are unholy and God is holy. It was meant to remind them that they are not worthy to stand in the very presence of God. This woman would have known well the guilt of her sin, known well that she is not worthy of a holy God. Imagine, again, what these words would have meant to her as Jesus himself says, you are at peace, you are loved, you are accepted by God himself. Brothers and sisters, these are the benefits we enjoy when we profess faith as well. When we profess faith, we are, again, translating into this everlasting community. The community that's going to exist in the new creation, that we have God as our Father, Uh, A father who has power over all things. But not only that, he promises to work all things for our good, that not a hair can fall from our head apart from his will and decree. We have an elder brother, a compassionate elder brother in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we walk through these narratives of the Gospels, we can know that the same heart of compassion that moved Jesus, even towards this woman, is the same heart of compassion he has towards you. Whatever trials, tribulations, sufferings, afflictions that you walk through in this life. It's a great benefit. Adoption. But we also have the benefit of that declaration that we are at peace with God. We're at peace with God. And that's why we have that declaration of pardon in our own services. Why we hear every week that we as unholy people, people who have a small beginning of true obedience, are at peace with a righteous and holy God. We live our week in a covenant of works world. You earn a reputation and income, success by your merit. And it's very easy when we live in that world Monday through Saturday to start thinking of our own Christian life in those terms. But the Lord's Day is one day in seven where we leave this world and we gather at the foot of heavenly Mount Zion and we hear that strange good news that we have received 
this great gift apart from our works. That's why the Lord's Day is the first day of the week. We rest and we work out of that rest. We don't earn that rest. As I mentioned, next week we're going to finish up uh, this narrative and, and consider Jesus raising this, this young girl from the dead. But as we will soon transition to partake together of the gospel made visible in the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper, be reminded that this meal is, a, is another benefit that we enjoy as the people of faith. That by faith, through the Holy Spirit, we have a communion with the risen Christ. By the Spirit, through faith, we are flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone, and are united to our risen Lord and Savior. And we look forward to that great day when that union which has been uh, inaugurated will be consummated in that marriage supper of the Lamb. So let us